Um, okay, um, we're very uh, happy to be hosting uh, Gabriel Shvake here today. Um, Gabriel is going to give a presentation of something like 45 minutes, and then we will have 45 minutes for question and answers, so do be engaged. Um, just a, a small introduction. So Gabriel Schwake is an assistant professor at uh, Freie Universität. <laughs> I'm still down. Uh, he is a trained architect, urban planner, researcher, and historian. Um, he completed his graduate and undergraduate studies at Tel Aviv University, and uh, he obtained his PhD from Technical University uh, in Delft, the Netherlands. And he is the author of Dwelling on the Green Line, um, Privatize and Rule in Israel-Palestine, and several articles uh, focusing on the influences of neoliberalism and nationalism on the process of spatial production. Um, his general areas of interest uh, include urban and architectural history, housing, territoriality, co uh, contested spaces, privatization, and post-colonialism. Um, Gabriel studied, taught, and conducted research at a variety of institutions, including Tel Aviv University, Groningen Architecture, Architecture Academy, TU Delft, and the University of Sheffield, um, Munich, Darmstadt, and more and more. Um, and he is also an active practitioner and partner at Studio Sabra in Amsterdam. Thanks, thanks for the nice introduction. I always feel like, like an obituary. <laughs> yes, uh, then, yeah, good afternoon, everyone. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, so thanks, Jacob, for inviting me. I feel like a very important guest being that today is uh, Israeli elections. So, uh, <laughs> but we're not going to talk about the elections. Uh, so yeah. So I think it's a great opportunity to come here and to talk about my work and uh, my research, what I've done previously and what I'm perhaps planning to do in the future as well. Um, so I'll be mainly talking about the research that led to my recently published book uh, by Cambridge Press, uh, Dwelling on the Green Line, which discusses this relationship between housing, uh, territory, and privatization seen in the Israeli settlements uh, built along the, uh, the border with the occupied West Bank, uh, the so-called uh, um, Green Line. Yeah? what I termed as privatized uh, territoriality. And this is based on the uh, basically development of my PhD project, which I did at uh, Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, and the Chair of History of Architecture and Urban Planning. And here comes the question, then, why what an architecture an urban historian like myself, uh, what do I have to sell you know, to, to people who are doing research or interested in, say, area studies or um, political sciences or you know, transnational politics? And I always like to start with uh, with this example. Hope maybe someone has an idea which what house this is. Or what, it's a house in Paris. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's uh, ever been built. It, no, but in Rue Neuf Saint Geneviève. It's not the Brooklyn. Uh... No, no, no. It's <laughs> another thing. Um, okay, it's it's the where the plot of uh, uh, Balzac's Father Guriot takes place. And now uh, this is Maison Vaquer, as it's called. And, uh, and, but this house, the way this Balzac uses it in the, in, in the novel, is, uh, is not just, you know, it's just it's not basic scenery. It's not a decoration. Uh, it's not where it's just the, the plot takes place. It is the plot in itself. Uh, and some would say that it's the, the main protagonist of the, of the novel. It's not by chance that the first chapter is a one long, detailed description of the house. Um, uh, and its different uh, tenants, uh, and he explains to us how this uh, house, in a way, embodies the social tensions of early 19th century Paris, uh, with the more the, the richer uh, tenants living in the first floor, uh, the, the so-called bel étage, uh, and as we go higher and higher through the building, we reach uh, the, the poorer uh, tenants, and there we meet Father Guriot and his. Uh, 
uh, neighbor goes by the name Jean de Rastignac. Um, and this is, this is, in a way, Paris of the early 19th century. And, uh, um, and later in chapter two, Balzac tells us that Guriot didn't always live on the third floor. Just one floor been, uh, under the servants, yeah? He actually began uh, three years before the novel starts, uh, began being a tenant in Amazon Vaquer, but lived on the first floor. And as he got poorer and poorer, and his economic status deteriorated, he began selling his assets and gradually moving uh, along the building, reaching the, the, the third floor. And uh, so, in that sense, yeah, his deteriorating status is also a spatial one. And, um, and it's not by chance that there he meets Rastignac, who just came to Paris and started the, uh, yeah, the journey from the other way around. So coming from nothing and eventually becoming a rich person. And, so, uh, and later on in the novel, when they plan uh, the future activities, plan to move to a different building where eventually Rastignac would live on the first floor and, Balzac, and, and uh, Goriot would live on the attic. Uh, so it's like a, he tells us that in, that in that sense, social mobility is also it's spatial, but it's also a zero-sum game. Someone has to go up and someone has to go down. Um, but and this is a, it's not just an anecdote, but it's, it's how to tell that this house or this building that I'm not sure, no one's sure whether it ever, uh, ever existed. It's, it's a microcosm of, of Paris in the early 19th century. Yeah? As I said before, it embodies the social and economic uh, uh, tensions of that time, and so Balzac, who in a way lost his fortune a couple of times uh, due to real estate speculation, which caused him actually to be an indebted person, and some would say even quite an anti-Semite. Uh, also, 200 years ago, already told us that the built environment is basically a yeah, socio-economic text. And the question, what interests me as, as an architecture and urban historian is how to, how to read these, you know, build, build texts, as we call them. And, this, for me as a historian, is, let's say, the essence of what Nietzsche called you know, the critical history, which, yeah, in contrast, let's say, to monumental history, which um, yeah, magnifies the past and creates myths, or let's say, the antiquarian historic historiography, which is the nostalgic one, the old, the good, the new. The critical one deals with the past, but in order to explore it, to understand its meaning and to dismantle these myths, and yeah, to carry out uh, genealogies, that re-examine orders uh, that are relevant today and see how um, we're even today reliving the past but not understanding it in that sense. Um, so, yeah, to understand the history, and the way I think we should understand history, we, 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 it needs to be examined from a theoretical, socio-economic and political perspective. And, um, and this is a quote I really like from the... Uh, whenever we're talking about which theories we, we use, yeah, we, uh, from uh, Graeber Wengro's recent book, uh, The Dawn of Everything, who must read to everyone, <laughs> say that uh, social theory always necessarily involves a bit of simplification, essentially reduce everything to a cartoon, so as to be able to detect patterns that would be otherwise invisible. One must simplify the world to discover something new about it. The problem comes when, long after discovery has been made, people continue to simplify and uh, this is yeah, this is something that I think is essential because it, it just reduces. You know, if you're doing history, you look in one perspective, you're always then cherry picking you know, how to avoid it. What I believe that what one should do is then to test theories when they ha uh, meet internal in uh, contradictions. We are 
they are less relevant and then to merge them or to or confront them with other ones. And by that to create a multi-layered uh, study of the built environment. Um, so what is this why I usually try to do? Yeah? So to focus uh, on the uh, socio-economic tension with, uh, and the, relations, uh, the relationship between uh, national political processes with uh, what are called the house and the asset and national agendas and the other. So this is the prism where I try to study the built environment because I believe that land or property never owned or houses, they're never just houses, lands and property. They're multiple connections, signs and signifiers that manifest the social context in which they are produced. And uh, yeah, when here we come to the idea of housing, part of the nation building process, uh, so this is part of the emphasis of creating a nation, homeowners, uh, which is an integral part of a let's say, post-war Western uh, democratic nation state, which advocated for, of course, welfare policy on one hand, but also um, the, the, the uh, proletarization of the working class, who by becoming uh, private uh, owning uh, owners of a private house, will become a partner or a, a shareholder in the country, in the state, and, and its economy. Um, but housing, or as we know it today, uh, real estate, um, became one of the most significant. Um, uh, um, parts of national economies, also benefiting um, upper middle class that turn into now asset owners. You see this is a graph from Piketty, you see how the, the income from housing has increased during the, the last uh, 50, 60 years. <coughs> Actually what was always uh, uh, scary is the part of the income in the US, and which has slaves in it, that disappeared and then was translated into housing eventually. But, uh, so, with, with, with this significant part that housing has been playing in, in national economies, we see this a shift from, or this focus of the upper middle class to become homeowners, but not just homeowners as a place to, 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 to live, right, where one dwells, but to own assets, yeah, to become landlords. Um, and eventually also real shareholders, not the conceptual ones in national building processes, national economies, and so on and so on. And to connect this actually with, with uh, could avoid bringing this, this um, to, with the light of elections today taking place in Israel. And this is the image of the extreme right-wing party of Smaiyudit, which I don't know, translated into English is Jewish strength or Jewish might or Jewish power. Um, and their slogan is like, who are the, who are the landlords or who are the homeowners here? Um, which illustrates for me at least the merger between uh, the ownership concepts uh, and housing discourse, but also of course, nationalism, because we all know who are the homeowners they're, they're, they're talking about. But in a way, returning to my research, for me, it's, yeah, it's um, to understand these dynamics between housing, assets, privatization, and state territoriality, we need to explore then how it evolved and eventually yeah, develop new theoretical frameworks that allow us to analyze history, yeah, the history of the built environment. I drew, uh, um, but how to do that? You know, I drew inspiration again from Graeber when he says um, in the 5,000 years of debt, the easiest way to understand the role that debt has played in human society is simply to follow the forms that money has taken and the way money has been used across the centuries and the, argue <laughs> the arguments that inevitably uh, uh, issued about what all this means. It's very easy. That's <coughs> the simplest way to do that. Uh, so I was trying to do something uh, similar. Uh, this is not 5,000 years, uh, not the entire world, a very specific context um, uh, of Israel-Palestine, a very specific place in Israel-Palestine, and over a period of four decades. Uh, 
but the reason I, I came to this actually was due to my work as an architect. This project I was involved in planning in southern Israel, in Dimona, uh, for the Ministry of Construction and Housing. Um, and in one of the meetings, uh, the representative of the, of the Ministry of Construction and Housing told me, this is very nice what you did, it's very beautiful, but we cannot market this. It's not marketable, it's not bankable. Meaning we will not have uh, entrepreneurs and uh, coming here and build this. It does not have enough. Um, it will not gener it generate enough profits. And I was wondering then, well, what, what does that mean? That planners and architects are supposed to create something good, or are we supposed to create something profitable? And at that time, I was doing my research on uh, Manshia and uh, Nebetzedek, many Manshia and the Wadi Salib, so ex uh, Palestinian uh, uh, neighborhoods in. Israeli cities today and how their redevelopment was part of neoliberal processes and I was continuing to uh, uh, wanted to do that let's say, on a bigger scale but at that time I was actually living in Tel Aviv and uh, yeah, each, um, every other week I was traveling to, meet, uh, to visit my uh, family in Nazareth, so northern Israel. So I was usually traveling along this road, route number six, which is the first ever privatized piece of uh, national infrastructure um, built in the late 1990s. Uh, so the, which symbolizes to many and is the Israel's neoliberal turn, and driving along it, uh, yeah, one cannot not notice the construction boom that uh, uh, that uh, uh, the area has witnessed in the last uh, two or three decades, decades, and resembled actually the the, the marketable planning that the Ministry of Construction and Housing wanted me to do. <laughs> uh, so it's like, oh wow, so this is what they're talking about. But also driving along the road. It's very you know pleasant ride and uh, and yeah so the private road and the private construction uh, it's impossible not to notice the infamous uh, West uh, West Bank uh, separation barrier right? even if it's hidden by trees uh, so as if it's not there um, so in, for me it illustrates the connection between privatization so the private road the private house uh, the, the private construction and the free market. But also the, the violent apparatus of uh, st state territoriality that made it possible, and uh, I think the last the last time I'm going to quote Graeber, when he said that whenever someone starts talking about the free market, it's a good idea to look around for the man with the gun. He's never far away, and, and he said that yeah, because it's, it's impossible to talk about the free market without taking, uh, thinking of um, who, yeah, the agendas that it serves. Um, so we have to, therefore, to if we take this seriously, to uh, by examining the built environment, we have to look at it through the common interests of both the free market and the man with the gun. And if someone doubts uh, whether there is a man with a gun and the settlements along the green line, then uh, uh, this is an image from Batrefa in the 1996. Batrefa, uh, and I think that goes uh, for the definition of a gun. Uh, and the Batrefel is an upper middle class uh, suburban uh, uh, community, uh, not not considered uh, it's in within, let's say, Israel proper, so it's not an illegal settlement. But yeah, we can understand how this process of suburbanization is then connected to the man with, with the gun. Yeah? Eventually, there are no tanks there today, but we need to ask whether the man with uh, the gun be, yeah, is now redundant due privatization, due to suburbanization. Uh, but to understand the, the, the territorial interest behind uh, establishment of places like Batrefe, we have to a bit go through the, the historical context of settlements in Israel-Palestine. So we have to go back a bit, 100 years, and understand how housing settlements were an integral part of yeah, what we call, what we call in Hebrew, uh, Kibusha Shmama, conquering the wastelands or the frontiers, 
which is a leading Zionist narrative, uh, which eventually paved the way to the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, uh, had you know, the focus of uh, creating a shared national identity um, through the act of settling Palestine, which then perceived the so-called land without the people, um, for the people without the land where they would eventually become a, a nation. So therefore, settlement, housing, and dwelling units were, their, uh, were a, a leading national mission. And uh, I, building on the idea of uh, David Empera, uh, the divide and rule, sometimes uh, wrongly uh, translated into divide and conquer, uh, chose to call this as um, uh, settling rule. This idea, through settlements, one rules over the land. And in the center of this action was the, the Halutz, the, the pioneer, this for, firm ideological figure involved in agriculture and land redemption, uh, in a way also firm, forming this entity. An antithesis to the anti-Semitic Im image of Jews in the diaspora, you know, the wandering uh, nation of deformed moneylenders that are far away from, you know, these strong men. Uh, so, in, in settling Palestine was just an, an act of fulfillment, of hakshama, where one fulfills one's individual calling, but as part of the national, um, uh, um, the greater national mission. And due to that, that the house was always a small dwelling unit, which received its meaning only as part of the larger uh, communal context. And this, we clearly see, uh, see this in this, the, uh, these elements in the, the communal settlements of the pre-stated years, the famous communal moshavim uh, and kibbutzim, drawn here with the sketches from Ali Shaon, and uh, actually in the 1950s he made these sketches. And um, yes, yeah, always get stuck. Ah, and so taking the idea of, of the settling rule, as I called it, and, but looking at it through the, the agricultural uh, perspective, like I said, actually it's an act of cultivating rule. So through uh, agricultural settlement, one then redeems the land. And, uh, and I think it's perfectly illustrated by this uh, poster from the JNF in the 1920s. Yeah? Uh, yeah, it's in Polish, actually, Polish and Yiddish. But uh, the, the act of farming is then the act of redeeming uh, the, the fatherland. And this idea of of uh, cultivated rule, agricultural settlements, the rural settlements uh, continued afterwards in the early statehood years uh, with the additional Moshavim and Kibbutzim built mainly along the, the newly formed uh, borders of the State of Israel. And these were eventually also enhanced by the new strategic plan draft, uh, for the young Jewish state drafted by architect Ari Sharon in 1949 to 1950. Uh, under the direct orders of, uh, of Ben-Gurion, uh, which had four main objectives to, dis to disperse the Jewish population from the coastline, which was mainly heavily populated, um, uh, to fortify the control over previously Arab areas and the new borders, um, to stimulate the country's industry, and provide housing solutions to the waves of, of newly coming uh, Jewish immigrants. And the answer of all these objectives was the, the development town, the Ayarat Pituach, uh, which were mid-sized uh, peripheral industrial towns uh, built in areas with low Jewish presence. Um, and here as well, we see that the dwelling unit was a basic entity. Yeah, again, received its meaning only as part of the greater societal context. So, uh, so the Spartan, well, minimalistic, very modernistic, uh, and part of the new, forming a new melting pot, a new national identity out of nothing, but at the same time also to boost the industry. Therefore, I continue with the cultivating rule idea and developed into an industrialized rule. But the semi or quasi-socialist uh, territorial development began changing, let's say, in the mid-1960s with the gradual uh, privatization of the local economy. Many see it in this uh, 
construction of uh, the uh, Migdal Shalom in uh, 1965 in Tel Aviv, uh, then the tallest building in the Middle East. How naive. <laughs> yes, uh, but yeah, that was uh, before, uh, before the Gulf uh, kicked in. Um, but uh, yeah, for me, someone who's interested in state economy relations, I was interested in seeing how then this privatization process was then harnessed for national interests uh, to the uh, territorial project. Because at that time, you know, we see that following the occupation of the West Bank in 1967, uh, it expanded uh, basically the, the national frontiers to be domesticated and to provide this needed platform where privatization could be practiced. Uh, and if you look at the area which interests me, which is the one along the, 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 the seam zone, the seam line, it's called uh, the, the area of the green line. Um, we see that until the 1960s, there was, it was scarcely developed. It was several rural settlements, very, very small, because uh, the state preferred other frontiers, uh, mainly Galilee, the Negev, which were, uh, had more priority in that, uh, in that sense. But let's say in the mid-1970s, uh, with a new metropolitan approach, um, uh, for the, the Tel Aviv metropolitan area, Gush Dan, uh, this area became the, the main land reserves for, for development, uh, which also em enabled moving uh, Israel's uh, um, border eastwards to, into the Green Line, even not officially, at least de facto, if not de jour, uh, and expanding what, what Israelis call the, the narrow waste. Yeah, this, it's a very, very narrow uh, piece of uh, around 15 to 21 kilometers. Um, so, in that sense, this area is a place that uh, experienced accelerated development mainly since the 1970s, so during the time when privatization started kicking in. Um, what makes it into, for me at least, an ideal case study to analyzing the built environment in light of uh, social, economic, and yeah, historical uh, transformations. But I was also always asking myself, okay, how, how do we do that? It's, it's very easy. And I started, uh, you know, say with a quite an, say, an orthodox Marxist approach of historical materialism, where yeah, the built environment is part of the superstructure, which is dictated by the base and the relations of production, and therefore it's supposed to serve it uh, and to enable its continuity. And we'll, I think we all read our Marx. Uh, so and if we understand the base, it's very simple. We can understand the uh, built space. As simple as that. And it reminded me of all this, this, this example that uh, Zizek likes from uh, the movie They Live, when uh, the character of uh, Roddy Piper obtains these sunglasses and he puts the sunglasses and he's able then to read space, uh, which is very nice, it's very, it's very catchy, but it, it reminded me of the oversimplicity that uh, Wang Rong Grable were talking about, uh, because we all know it's not that simple. Right? So, and even if we, that's why if we talk about the Frankfurt Boys, so mainly Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, we took the Marx material and developed it uh, by coining the idea of in, uh, cultural industry. What they did was essentially abolish this distinction between base and superstructure. We have just have cultural industry. That's everything together, uh, which is yeah, it's very interesting. This is the multi-layered perspective that we're talking about, but it makes it also more difficult, especially in neoliberalism, because it complicates everything even more. Because apparently neoliberalism. Yeah, is, is, a, is a platform for individual freedom, self-fulfillment, um, 
But as uh, David Harvey ex uh, explains, it, at the end, it's usually meant, uh, it usually promotes uh, more investment, yeah, to this business climate. So not, not necessarily individual freedom. But we have to remember that usually main theories on neoliberalism and neoliberalism spatial development, like Harvey and but many others, they are usually applicable to Western contexts. Yeah, there's such a thing, Western context. But let's say the post-Keynesian forest uh, states, uh, and less relevant to to places like Israel, where it's hard to say who's serving who, yeah, whether it's the country that's uh, the state that's uh, serving the market or the other way around. And we usually it's, it's it's very hard to draw the line uh, here, and usually also we have a different uh, answer, but I will get to in, to that later. Um, but and and this is part of say Western neoliberalism, say the European but also North American one, is the fact that as Harvey says that it is then a, a sort of a scheme, you know, it's like a he does not say that it's a, that it's a kind of. Um, um, conspiracy of the pre-war elites, but in a way he said that it's a conspiracy of pre-war elites uh, to regain the power that they began losing during the, the, uh, the welfare, uh, welfare years of the 1950s and 1960s. And we see this is the income of the upper decile in the, the US, and we see how it diminished during the uh, 1950s, 1960s, and in 2000s we're back to 1928. So, so if there is someone doubts there is a such thing called neoliberalism, I think this graph explains everything. But then the question: What happens in contexts like Israel, where there were no post-war elites, at least not economic ones? Okay, how does then privatization, how uh, neoliberalism, how is it then manifested uh, there? And who helped me actually in, in, in thinking about this was, uh, or solving, perhaps trying to solve the question, was Kim Dovey in his, write, uh, in his writings about power, space, control. And one of the things that he points out is that social spatial theories, you know, Foucault, Lefebvre, and the other Frenchmen, uh, as well as the historians that rely on them, they usually ignore the question of uh, agency. And the fact that the individual could be simultaneously empowered and disempowered by, or through space. Uh, and if we combine this with the concept of uh, spatial privilege, which explains um, the ability of hegemonic groups to uh, influence the production of space according to their desires and to match their interests and uh, to, uh, to create these spatial hierarchies, uh, then we can understand that, um, uh, that agency uh, of hegemonic groups is actually part of uh, state's control mechanism. And uh, so what I was trying to do, and what I did actually, was to examine privatization by relying on this distinction of power over, power to, by, by Dovey. Um, I was arguing that in, in, um, in ethnic-based post-socialist democracies, like in Israel, the process of privatization is then directed to enhance the state's power over space by, using, by uh, giving uh, privileged groups power to influence space. So in that sense, yeah, forming two ways to enhance state, uh, state territoriality. And through integral research, crowd uh, documents, surveys, uh, statistical data, ma mapping, modeling, I was, what I was trying to do all the time is to identify who these groups were, okay? whether like Galinim, yeah, the, the, the ideological nucleus, as it's called in, in Hebrew, or kernels, 
uh, or uh, housing associations, or later than entrepreneurs. Uh, what were the spatial privileges that they received to establish community, to build one, to plan, to, to, to market to the space, and then analyze the spatial product, uh, which includes the settlement itself, its planning, its housing, its architecture, and then to understand this, this, this link between them, and this relations of, between the power over and power too. Because again, we have to understand that the privatization, and this is uh, what Danny Gutwein claims, that privatization in Israel was, we, we, so always says that it's 1977. Until 1977, everything was great, it was, the country was socialist, and then everything uh, went wrong. But uh, the way that Danny Gutwein explains, that, no, privatization started, uh, started much earlier. Uh, and without privatization, without the new economic elites that they were started forming during the 1960s, uh, the 1977 uh, turnover would not, would not have uh, taken place. Uh, so it is because in Spain, it is actually the, 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 the alliance with the, the, the right-wing Chirut party, with the liberals, the free liberals, that the, the turnover was uh, eventually uh, successful. Um, so it is this the reliance on this new class, but also on uh, the, the, the support of the so-called socialist elites reflected in the, the economic stabilization, uh, stabilization plan from 1985, which was um, yeah, authorized by Shimon Peres. Yeah, until, until he died, he was uh, still going to the internationalist uh, conferences. Um, but we see here that uh, this, this process will always part of, you see that these influential groups, like let's say the, the Labour Party or its members or its, its lobby, um, were able to steer the process of privatization to benefit their interests, but also to translate uh, political or cultural or, uh, capital into real capital, in our case, real estate. So we can call this process basically a process of selective privatization. So, and if, if we look at the settlements along the Green Line, and um, asking then how, how this secular um, privatization developed, meaning who were these groups, what were the privileges that they uh, um, received, we start understanding Israel's neoliberalization, how it became an integral part in national interests. And so contrary actually to most writing on, um, on politics and architecture, uh, which focus mainly on monumental buildings or say, uh, uh, capital cities, or in the case of Israel, let's say, a hardcore uh, or par excellence settlements in the depth of the West Bank, or contested spaces, let's say, East Jerusalem, Morocco, or Jaffa. Was I thought that actually this boring architecture, you know, this really dull uh, scenery, actually represents better the, the, the historical process of privatization, um, or the privatizing uh, national project, as it's called, uh, sense, which exists within Israel proper, but also continues uh, beyond the Green Line into the West Bank. So I came up with this matrix that we had cultivating rule, industrialized rule, that we continued to privatize and rule. And, but also this privatizing rule is not static. Yeah? It's, um, it has its own uh, four sub-periods, as I identified them, each with, with its own mode of production. So we have the neo-ruralization in the 1970s, late 1970s, early 80s, and then the gentrification of the Green Line, and then the mass urbanization in the 1990s, and then current financial uh, financialization, which is what we see today. And when we're talking about neo uh, uh, the neo-rural phase, is the first step, I think, at least, the, the private uh, settlement of the Green Line. And the focus here was mainly what they called then the communal settlements, 
these quasi-agricultural, therefore near-rural settlements that um, that consist of quite a small number of uh, of families of very homogeneous character, uh, and these were used by the government basically to attract the urban upper middle class, mainly young secular couples to frontier areas by providing them this uh, pioneering experience uh, and giving them spatial privilege here to to establish an isolated community, um, a very small and gated one. Yeah. So the Zahiri was this, this pioneer experience uh, and social seclusion is what uh, was was the main uh, focus of the late 1970s and uh, 1980s. Uh, and we see this, for example, in, in, in Salit, uh, 19, this is 1980, the construction of the first houses. We see that this is still not suburbia. Okay, it was like, it's, it's quite hard living there then. Now it's a really nice suburb, but then it was quite hard uh, with these prefabricated units, and this is uh, a Khan settlement, uh, the Khan cluster, and uh, uh, settled by the Apoel uh, Tzioni. Both groups were secular, center, even they would call themselves leftists, uh, but they had quite meager conditions. The same year with Khilanit and Sheked, so all, but all urban families, upper middle class or middle class, um, that want to move out and want look look for something new, something different. Uh, this uh, this part of them say early neoliberalism, post-industrial experience-oriented uh, development, and we see also that uh, the planning phases and the layout it all resemble the what I call this the the, the cluster um, model. They resembled the communal settlement, they resembled the Mushavim, they resembled the Kibbutzim. We had this minimal dwelling units sharing a, a one big open green space, but unlike the Mushavim and Kibbutzim, we have something here that's lacking, which is farmlands. So they are designed as agricultural settlements, but not without any agricultural functions, without any means of production. So it was like an agric agricultural settlement without agri agriculture. Yeah? So this is why this why it's near rural. It's rural, but not really rural. Uh, but still, in the, in, the, in the early days, there were prefabricated units, fortified concrete, or um, assembled and had very minimalist. Slowly, uh, families began expanding them, but we're not still not talking about um, uh, the su suburban settlements that we know today. Uh, this began changing in the early 1980s with settlements like Nirit, uh, west, uh, uh, west of the Green Line in uh, Israel proper, uh, which was planned in this model beginning, but began expanding to what I call the, 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 the star model, and this semi-Americanized uh, way of uh, suburbia, not, and not there yet, but we're, we're getting there slowly, slowly, yeah, but, uh, and also the example of Yarit, which is quite, let's say, American tract housing, suburbia, Levittown, etc., and it, it, they both symbolize the, the, the intervention of the growing intervention of private companies there. And we see also that brought this new typology of the new house. Uh, they put the nuclear family. This now what's, what's important uh, here is the, ha the big house and the lot where the house sits on uh, the, the center of the planning process. Uh, this is now the ideal. Two years and we have a totally different architecture. And this continued to develop, you know, this, increase, this focus on the, the, the family and the private family, the private life, the house, uh, uh, continuing with what I call the gentrification of the Green Line, in which we, uh, the suburban settlement appeared. And these were uh, small scale, but now larger, 2,500 families. And this is interesting that still they count families. So it's, it's, a, it's a term that uh, all 
planning uh, establishments in a way took from the rural settlements of the pre-statehood years. Um, they resemble the, the community settlements but were still different. We, we don't have any ideological group. We have housing associations or housing groups. And you, they're usually privileged members of, let's say, influence groups, either the IDF, uh, political parties like Chabot uh, Beitar, the Ministry of Defense, uh, or the military uh, industries. And these people, in a way, receive these groups receive the right or the privilege to build their own to build their own settlement and their own houses. Uh, and what we were saying before, transforming their political capital into into housing. Uh, so it's not by chance that we see that the house itself now and the family began the, being the, the focus of planning, like the case of. Youngsters, IDF, and the Association of uh, the, uh, the Federation of Zionists of South Africa. Um, and just looking at who, who was able to get houses, we can talk about this for hours. But what's, what's interesting here that we see that is now we, we don't have, we, there's no hierarchy. We just have plots that were just put together. That's it. And it's, it's, it's this new form of planning. Yeah? It's a union of plots. So it's a new union of individuals in that sense. And um, so, so the, the houses themselves were even larger, much more extravagant. Talking about you know, quite large houses, 200, 500, uh, 250 meters, that's quite huge. Yeah, for that everyone lived in. Uh, and there, were, there was an upper middle class, but they're still not, they were not rich. Yeah, they were young officers. Uh, and what's also interesting here is the uniformity of design. All houses look the same. And that is 180 degrees of the other upper middle class that was getting the right to build their own houses, which is the Mizrahi middle class, who were all, uh, always seen as building these novarish, tasteless uh, uh, villas. But you know, this is the beautiful Israel. Uh, this is the ideological uh, one. It's, it's, it's going through bourgeoisification, but still, it has its uh, its um, uh, its ideological also. You can call it still socialism in that sense that we're all the same, even if we're living in in in, in extravagant villas. Uh, but uh, so th this this newly formed uh, newly formed the upper middle class or bourgeois class uh, now in the mid 1980s was the, the main uh, force of the behind development. We see this as said, west of the Green Line, but also east of the Green Line, still the same design principles. Uh, originally intended for um, uh, military officers and or ornate. Um, this, 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 this section of the house, uh, this split level house with, uh, the, with the family area in the backyard with the closed facade towards the community. So if we had a communal setting of, the, of five years uh, before, uh, where, where say the minimal dwelling units, but what's important with the focus was the community. Now the focus here is totally the, the private house the car, uh, we see the small windows that are uh, directed towards the communal, the, 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 the neighbors and everything is, is happening inside. Yeah? So, and this is, is, is taking place parallel to, to, to the yeah, transition from yeah, community to individual, we can call it. Um, and actually, if we talk about the direction of the facade uh, of uh, the living rooms, there's this quote from, from uh, from Eyal Weizmann from Hololand, actually started with, with, with him and Segal uh, analyzing this typology uh, and civilian occupation, and they then leaned on Virilio and said that this is, in a way, can be read as a panoptic order. Yeah? So, uh, and, Ho and Hololand Weizmann takes this further, and uh, he simply says that, in a way, uh, yeah, it was purposely designed to make settlers as part of the 
of the occupying force, uh, which is it's an interesting explanation, but I believe it's a bit far-fetched. And I, this is, again, the oversimplification, because we have to take economy into it. You have to take the, the, the desire for better living standards into it, especially when we see that this design is uh, resulting from the recommendation of the Jewish agency uh, several years ago and how to build in mountainous, uh, mountainous areas and how to create optimal panoramas and, uh, and sense of space and privacy. That's the most important. And again, we see this then, this model uh, implemented uh, everywhere. This is Reut, uh, military, still today, many military uh, uh, personnel living there. And even here where there's no topography, they still build as if there was topography. They create this, this split-level model uh, to emphasize the separation between uh, the family and family area and uh, you know the outside, you know, uh, and yeah. So this was mainly the, the, the main, let's say, protagonist layer, the, the main, uh, the main driving force. And this, uh, and this uh, continued evolving, let's say, in the mid 1990s with the massive boom, uh, the massive suburbanization of the area. Uh, what was called in the Stars Plan, relying on the name Kuchavir, the uh, star. It was promoted by uh, uh, Parliament member Michael Eitan, one of the uh, founders of, uh, of Kochavir. Uh, but now what we had here, uh, what we have here now is now totally well-coordinated mechanism. Yeah? It's, it's a sort of assembly line that started with um, locating lands for development, but the, the ones that had first territorial significance, which is either where uh, there are no, uh, not enough Jewish settlements or there are too many uh, Arab settlements uh, on the one hand, but also economic feasibility. This started being something that's very important, which not, did not appear in, in, in protocols before that. And then surveying and mapping the areas and then div uh, planning them and dividing them into clusters and plans, and then allocating parcels for development. And the beginning, we see some housing associations, yeah, one IDF or political parties, but by the mid-1990s, the Minister of Construction and Housing stopped relying on them and shifted towards um, a private construction companies. And with that, we see that uh, in terms of planning, uh, the houses and the aesthetics themselves, in a way, continued, it resembles the houses of the 1980s, but now much higher uniformity because we have a well, say, well, uh, well coordinated, uh, much more significant uh, uh, scope of construction. Um, and in that sense, also uh, uh, one that is totally directed by the, by the market. And that leads us then to the, the final stage, which is taking place today, uh, what I call the financialization of the Green Line mainly in Kharish and Suitzhak, which both started actually as a, a continuation of earlier stages. So Kharish uh, was initially a kibbutz, Suitzhak was a um, development of Tsunatan, a, a, a rural settlement, Mushav. Uh, but due to uh, lack of interest, the state uh, repeatedly halted construction. Uh, but tried, every time that it ignited the construction, uh, it was then adapted to the relevant mode of production then. So the beginning in the 1980s, after the, the failed rural phase, they tried the communal settlement, and then more semi-suburban ones in the, mid, in the early 1990s, or high-rise suburbia in the late 1990s. And but what's interesting here is that continuously what the state did, mainly after 2001, that as these projects did not ignite, there was no, there was no lack of interest, mainly from contractors, not from, uh, not from, 
families or potential buyers, what the Ministry of Construction did was to repeatedly guarantee the economic feasibility through alteration of planning, yeah? redesigning, re-parceling, uh, changing the housing typologies from low to mid, the same dwelling units, but are rearranged uh, and as uh, uh, quote, to, uh, intended to exploit the economic potential of the land, unquote. This is the official statement of the Ministry of Construction and Housing. And this was eventually enhanced by allocating entire complexes to, or neighbors to one single entrepreneur to make, to, to enhance economic feasibility once again. And this is exactly then this change, you know, this passing from this, uh, passing this spatial privilege from initially the, 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 the Gali name and the, the associations to eventually the, the, the private uh, entrepreneurs that we began moving from the idea from the house to we have here property and eventually asset, which leads us eventually to this hybrid. I don't know, and as an architect, I cannot say what this is. It's, a, it's this hybrid of uh, suburban urban typologies that one finds it hard to find uh, um, parallels in other uh, contexts, I have to say. And when we look at the, the, the uh, the, the, this, uh, this H house, as it's called in Israel, the H building, which now is a symbol of the Israeli built environment. We see how it evolved there during that time, and in a way, we can call this type of neoliberal vernacular, yeah? which, for me, it completes the final uh, transition from the house into an asset, uh, but while constantly yeah, um, facilitating the continuation of the national territorial agenda, but simultaneously transforming the the landscape, and I will start wrapping up by, by giving this uh, example. Uh, so if we started with Balzac, uh, we'll finish with the Hamishia Kamerit, one of the most popular Israeli comedy series from the 1990s, which sadly is still very funny today. And uh, in this in this uh, sketch, uh, Rami, uh, Rami Heuberger playing the role of a typical secular settler. That's why he doesn't have a uh, doesn't have a yarmulke on. Uh, it was intentional, but he has the settler coat on, and uh, the settler is telling us about the quality of life of the settlement in light of uh, the fears of evacuation. Now, in the 1990s, people were still thinking that uh, settlements would be evicted because it's the happy days of Oslo then. So uh, Rami Heuberger, the settler, starts telling us, look at this view, vegetation, boulders, rocks, animals, you have everything here. Look at the horizon, how bright it is. Look at the houses, how nice they are. The kids are playing in the yard. Look how everything was built here with faith, love, honesty. Do you feel the breeze? Do you see the skies? Aren't they bluer here? Breathe, breathe. It's not Tel Aviv here. You can breathe with all the lungs. You know, I open my eyes here in the morning. Birds are on the windows, sunset over the mountains. This house, for example, built to stand for years, three floors, with room for many children and, and grandchildren, inshallah. The basketball that I installed in the yard, the pool is almost finished, just left to pave around it. Now, I'm not, I'm not a religious person, but add to that all this, uh, add to all this the sense of mission and the power of the, and the concept of ancestral land, which all have real meaning here, a tangible one. Isn't this worth 1 million to 200,000 shekels? No? What did they have there in Yamit? And Israeli settlement in Sinai was uh, evacuated in 1981. What did they have? Gold in the ground? It's a hole in the, in the desert. Since Moses, not even a dog passed there. 
And what did they get? People there opened banks with the money they received from the state. Banks. They built villas. So what? For a house like this in the center of the, in the, in the, center of the country, they won't give 1,200,000? Come on. Get out of here. You're making me crazy. 1,400,000. No less. Go tell your government. Otherwise, there is no peace. I will not allow it to be. So what, what Rami Harberger is trying to tell us here was actually probably Modi Bawon. Uh, that the building environment is not just, uh, it's, it's, it's a multi-layered text, yeah? it's not just the house, uh, it's, uh, it's not just an asset, it's not just a territory, it's all of them together, but it's also um, a, multitude, a multitude of signs, signifiers, uh, and meanings that only through this multi-layered historical uh, perspective we're, we're able to uh, start dismantling them. And uh, yeah, after finishing that I was always thinking, myself, okay, now what? And uh, what I'm doing now is continuing, but in, the, in a mirror image, and I will start wrapping up with this. This is uh, re uh, recent research I did about this uh, neighborhood in uh, built in the 1950s, Natsat uh, Elite, then Kirat Natsaret, today Nofa Galil. Built in the 1950s, uh, was an officer's neighborhood for the newly formed uh, Northern Command. It was part of, uh, you know, the interest to Judaize the Galilee and to enhance states, the state control over the area, meaning mainly the largest Arab city in Israel, Nazareth, um, by, by settling the Hindla around it, especially by officers of the Northern Command. But what's interesting here is that due to the proximity to Nazareth, which is the center of the, Isra the Arab community inside Israel, uh, what we see actually is this newly uniformed bourgeois Arab class late 1970s and early 1980s, that started looking you know, for a better quality of life, which they couldn't find in their own cities. And they began moving to Upper Nazareth, mainly to the officer's neighborhood. And we see this in the 1970s, no Arabs. We see them in the 1980s, some Arab, Arab families moving in, 1990s. And by 2020, the former and it's still called by the, the official name of the neighborhood, still the military neighborhood, uh, or the officer's neighborhood, and it's 95% Arab today. Uh, and yeah, we, we, we can in a way say it's similar to what they, what they call in the US white flight. Uh, the first fa uh, black family moves in, all white families move out. When, but this is usually uh, um, is accompanied by deteriorating real estate prices. Uh, usually white families, use, uh, we don't, we don't, we don't we, we don't hate black people. Yeah? We just have, we don't want our property to lose its, uh, its value. But what happened here actually is that prices exploded. So in that sense, on one hand we have white fight, but on, this, on, the, on the other hand we have gentrification. We have upper, upper class Arab families moving in and middle class Jewish families moving out. So in a way, this is the, the, the powerful group here uh, economically, is actually the one was that's uh, yeah the, the underprivileged one yeah so in the, in how do we define this uh, decolonizing gentrification uh, it's it's very hard to say um, and we we see that the change is visual first by you know turning from small scale houses uh, near design into this is the same house this the same perspective yeah and to this grand villas but the ones who are aware of the, of the differences of the, uh, can see that it's also you know, aesthetically turned into an Arab neighborhood. The use of stone, the use of arches, 
the satellite dishes, which are usually, especially if you have two, if you have two satellites, it's a problem because uh, you always need one satellite oriented to the Arab world and one oriented to the to the Western world. Whereas Jewish families usually don't have satellite dishes; they'll have cables, unless, uh, unless the Russian is ready. But uh, but even for people who are not uh, experts in in reading. Uh, uh, identity through architecture. This is you can see that once you see that the houses uh, already have Quran engravings or Christmas trees. So yeah, one entering the neighborhood today, uh, and I took these images in, uh, in uh, during Christmas. You see that it's it's uh, it's already a, it's, a, it's an Arab neighborhood. So it is a question of reappropriation on the one hand, but privatization on the other. So it's like, in a way, a mirror image of what I was uh, doing before and, and trying now to develop uh, the theoretical framework. Can, can we talk about privatized decolonization? Is there such a thing? Um, which is uh, it's a question that I've been, not been able to answer. Because we, we see this in other places. We see this in, uh, in the paper I wrote about Neve Shalom Wahd Salam. Uh, which is you know this alternative bi-ethnic bi-national community uh, was built in the early 1980s began as this alternative project and today I call it a bi-national real estate project that uh, even here it's highly noticeable to understand which family lives in which house yeah uh, you can tell the difference by design who lives uh, who are Arabs and who are Jews and I was asking myself whether this is intentional I was like okay say no no this is how we represent our identity through the market. And while this is seen as you know, quite scarcely in, or quite, let's say, a small scale inside Israel, in the West Bank, this is taking much larger scale, yeah, with the construction of Rawabi in 2008, Bashar uh, al-Masri, you know, open, let's say, the privatization or the neoliberalization of the Palestinian cause. Yeah? So through the construction of real estate, through uh, um, speculation, uh, through private initiative, Palestine will be liberated, which is, in a way, the I totally uh, um, to what I was uh, talking about before. And the Rawabi today, which is, you know, we can talk about whether it's a failed project or not, architecturally, financially, is, is a footnote because what, what the, um, uh, the Palestine Investment Fund is doing today is establishing much larger projects uh, like uh, Rehan and Jinan, but also other ones like Sutra Hills or Birzeit Heights or the Wurud neighborhoods, and all these, you know, very also, you know, um, well-marketed uh, real estate projects, very suburban, uh, very high-end, and the highlight of everything is is Moon City, Madinat al-Qamar, uh, which is you know promoted as this luxurious city, um, includes you know high-end uh, high housing, spas, research facilities, you know, the, 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 as far as possible as what someone could think of when talking about decolonization. Yeah? Uh, but when promoting it, if you go to the uh, to the promotion campaigns, it was al it's always promoted as part of the Palestinian cause, which for me is just you know it's uh, I, I'm so astonished about it. I can uh, I, I was watching all these promotion uh, campaigns for hours, but I think that 
we cannot say no, we cannot say yes, and we have to then continue thinking, if we talk about privatized colonization, when, what about privatized decolonization? We cannot just give this, uh, no, this past, no, that does not work. Yeah, it does not work, but we have to talk about it. Because as I said a couple of times before, I will say it for the last time, built space is, is, is a multi-layer text. Yeah? It is a house, it's a territory, it's an asset, it's all of this together. And only by understanding this set of signs and signifiers uh, were able then to read this text. And yeah, I'll finish by that. Thank Thanks. You.